0: And I'm going to invite Mark to come and give us our reading. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 1 to 33. It's quite a long reading uh, this morning, but it's worth having the whole thing. Sometimes it's good to read uh, a a little bit longer, uh, read around the text a bit more. So Mark's going to do that. Uh, Thanks, Mark.
1: For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea they were all baptized into moses in the cloud and in the sea they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was was christ nevertheless god was not pleased with most of them their bodies were scattered in the wilderness And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too you cannot have a part in both the lord's table and the table of demons are we trying to arouse the lord's jealousy are we stronger than he i have the right to do anything you say but not everything is beneficial i have the right to do anything but i do not but but not everything is constructive no one should seek their own good but the good of others Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced for, because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine
0: a person who has become an Australian citizen. Uh, They could be from anywhere in the world, that's not important. Um, So they move to Australia Uh, They lived and worked here for the required amount of time. Uh, They completed their application. They passed their citizenship test, and they attended their citizenship ceremony. Uh, They did all the right things to show that they are a good and loyal citizen of Australia. From the outside, everything seems fine. But what if they were knowingly sending money to a terrorist organization Overseas. I think in that case, we would want to say that their actions were completely incompatible with their new identity as an Australian. In today's reading, Paul gives a strong warning to the Corinthians because their way of life was completely inconsistent with their new identity as Christians. They took part in the religious practices that identified them and marked them out as Christians, so um, primarily baptism and communion. But at the same time, they engaged in all kinds of practices that are antithetical to what we believe as Christians. And we'll see that this kind of inconsistency wasn't new in Paul's day, and it can still be a problem in the church today. There are plenty of people who embrace the signs, the symbols, the rituals, the trappings of Christianity without changing any other area of their lives. They've been baptized, they attend church weekly, receive communion, recite prayers. But when they leave the service, perhaps every area of their life is inconsistent with the Christian message. That is what Paul is warning against. That was the problem that was occurring in the church in Corinth. Uh, Members of the church thought that they would meet with God's approval by by participating in baptism and communion, as if that was all that God requires. The Corinthians were very relaxed about sin. They knew that Jesus had died for their sin. And as far as they were concerned, sin didn't really matter. It's kind of like, well, uh, Jesus has dealt with that, don't worry about it, do whatever you want. As I said a few weeks ago, they had mistaken freedom from sin for freedom to sin. And Paul's warning to them was based on the most important event or sequence of events in Israel's history uh, up until Jesus I'm, of course, referring to the Exodus when God freed his people from slavery in Egypt and then the subsequent wilderness wanderings and in the Sinai Desert, which lasted for 40 years. I mean, if there's one Bible story that everyone knows, it's when Moses held out his staff and God parted the Red Sea. And Paul likens Israel's crossing of the Red Sea to baptism. In order to escape slavery in Egypt, the Israelites had to pass through the waters of the Red Sea. And in order to escape from slavery to sin, we must pass through the waters of baptism. And you may remember how God fed his people uh, in the desert with a strange bread-like substance called manna, and when they were thirsty, he told Moses to strike the rock and Uh, water came gushing out. And Paul says they all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. What do you think Paul is trying to get them to think about? What is the spiritual food and drink that we share together when we meet on a Sunday? Someone shout it out. Communion. I'm glad no one said morning tea. (laughs) So Paul is showing how the Israelites all participated in the same things. They all passed through the Red Sea. They all ate the manna from heaven. They drank the water from the rock. They did all the things that identified them as God's people. And yet God was not pleased with most of them. Doesn't mean that they don't belong to God's people, but God was not pleased with most of them. That's putting it mildly. Uh, because of the generation that escaped from Egypt, it was only Joshua and Caleb who set foot in the promised land. All the rest perished in the desert. Everyone who entered the promised land with Joshua and Caleb were a new generation who had been born during the wilderness wandering. So God has, has replaced the whole generation. Paul, as I said, Paul is not saying that they lost their salvation They were saved from slavery when they crossed the Red Sea. And Paul is not saying that the Corinthians have lost their eternal salvation. He's simply warning them and us that if we rebel against God, God will need to find ways to bring us back to him, to bring us back on track. And that can sometimes, as many of us will know from experience, that can sometimes be a very difficult and painful process. Of course, that doesn't mean... That if you're experiencing difficulties in life, that is because you're rebelling against God, but certainly rebelling against God will never lead to anything good. So, how did the Exodus generation and the Corinthians rebel against God? Well, Paul makes a number of comparisons. There are four ways, four things that Paul mentions. Firstly, idolatry. Straight after the Israelites were delivered from slavery, in Egypt. Uh, as soon as they left to their own devices, they made a golden calf. They danced around it naked. There's hints that uh, other dodgy things uh, were going on, uh, as, as if this lifeless idol had anything to do with them being fra- freed from slavery in Egypt. We'll talk about more about uh, idolatry uh, in a few moments, particularly the Corinthians' idolatry and what that meant. Uh, secondly, he talks about the way in which the Israelites committed sexual immorality with Moabite women. And we're well aware of the sexual immorality that was rife in the city of Corinth with the uh, temple prostitution and promiscuity and all the things that were going on there. Uh, we talked about that at length on the 12th and the 19th of June. So if you miss those sermons, you can always uh, catch up with those online. Uh, thirdly, He talked about an episode in Numbers 21 when the Israelites complained against God and against Moses. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. A bit of a contradiction there. They're saying there's no bread, uh, but we detest the food. Uh, So they had food, they just didn't like it. Uh, This could be linked to the fact that some in the uh, Corinthian church, they didn't like Paul. Uh, They didn't like what he had to say, his teaching. They dismissed his message, and in so doing, they held God's word in contempt. God was speaking to them, but they didn't like what they were hearing. So when the Israelites were in the desert, God was feeding them uh, physically with physical food. They didn't like the food they were getting. And in the Corinthian church, God is feeding them in the spiritual sense. Paul is teaching them, but they didn't like what they were hearing. Finally, Paul mentions another occasion when the Israelites grumbled against God. They didn't like God's way of doing things. Uh, But this is very similar to the last one. So we'll deal with the the two together under the uh, general heading of complaining and grumbling. As God's people, as Christians, we are supposed to glorify God. Idolatry, sexual immorality, complaining and grumbling do the exact opposite. Let's start with complaining and grumbling. Whoever we are and whatever we've got going on in our lives, if we look for them, we can find reasons to complain. Uh, And often those complaints are directed against God, even if we don't realize it. But equally, we can find reasons to thank God with a grateful heart. So we can find reasons to complain and grumble. We can find reasons to to thank God and be grateful to God. I don't think I need to tell you which of those brings glory to God. Now, that doesn't mean that we paper over the cracks, that we pretend that everything is fine when it's not. If we're facing a painful and difficult situation, we name it and we look to God to strengthen us and to guide us through it. That doesn't uh that, that gives glory to God. That's very different from complaining against God. Similarly, it's okay to be in anguish and to ask God why? Why did this happen? I don't understand. That's okay. Again, that glorifies God because we're looking to God in our time of need and trusting God even when we don't understand. That's very different from saying, God, you are at fault. That is not a good thing to say to God. Uh, Some of us probably have said something like that to God, words to that effect at some point in our lives, thankfully. God is always willing to forgive those who truly repent. But overall in life, we should praise God and thank him for his many blessings that he might be glorified. Complaining can become a habit. Not necessarily complaining uh, against God, but complaining in general, which is ultimately being ungrateful to God. And it all comes down to perspective. What we choose to see in any given situation. Going back to Paul's example, the Israelites could have focused on the fact that God had freed them from slavery. He protected them from Pharaoh and his army. He guided them across the desert. He had fed them miraculously. He'd provided water miraculously. He'd promised them a land of their own flowing with milk and honey. They could have focused on any of those things and given thanks for them. But no, they focused on their relative discomfort in that moment and on what was a somewhat repetitious menu. And the Corinthians could have praised God for Paul's insight and wisdom, for revealing the spiritual realities of this world to them, for 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 God opening their eyes to the truth. They could have thanked God for any of those things but instead they stubbornly clung to their old sinful ways and complained against Paul and against his teaching. Perspective is everything. Perspective is everything. When my parents came to visit in April, they came at the beginning of a major weather event, Uh, a record amount of rain, I think the most rain that we've ever had uh, at that time of year. Uh, they were here for six weeks, and for the fi- first five weeks, it rained every day. I'm struggling to convince them that we actually have a nice climate here in Queensland. To make matters worse, in the UK, uh, they were having beautiful, warm, sunny days, no rain at all. Uh, in spite of the weather, we did have some lovely, way- uh, lovely days out, and the rain held off at a few key moments. And towards the end of the trip, and my mum was being completely serious She said, haven't we been blessed with the weather? Whenever we've wanted to go out and do something, we've been able to. I mean, what an amazing perspective. What a gift to be able to praise God in a situation where many, if not most people might be grumbling. So you see, we can glorify God by changing our perspective. So we're going to skip over the area of sexual immorality that Paul mentions in this passage because we looked at that in depth a few weeks ago, and we're going to move to uh, this issue of idolatry. Paul makes it clear that through the act of receiving communion, through receiving the bread and the wine, we participate in the body and blood of Christ. When we receive communion, we're not just eating the bread and drinking the wine to remind ourselves of Christ's broken body and spilt blood, although that is part of what we're doing. But when we receive communion, we are, in a very real sense, receiving Christ. In other words, when we receive the bread and the wine, we are saying yes to Christ. Communion makes us partners with Christ and with our fellow worshippers. Paul goes on to say that the central rituals of pagan religions have a similar effect. They bring the worshippers into partnership with one another and with the spiritual forces of evil that stand behind those religions. Earlier in chapter 8, Paul says an idol is nothing at all in the world. In other words, it's just a lifeless lump of wood, stone or metal. So a Christian could eat the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, uh, that wouldn't be a problem, and yet, unless by doing so they would cause a Christian brother or sister to to be really shocked or horrified or concerned about it. You know, maybe some uh, Christian brother or sister didn't quite have the same understanding around this, and if they saw this uh, this other Christian eating the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, they, they'd be horrified. They think, What's going on? Are they a real Christian? Can we do this? Can I do this? You know, and it would cause all kinds of confusion. And Paul says, well, in that case, just don't eat the meat. Just don't eat it if that's going to happen. But eating meat that's been sacrificed to an idol will not harm the Christian who eats it because it is not a participation in the ritual. It doesn't bring them into any kind of partnership. Just as eating consecrated communion wafers is meaningless if it's completely divorced from the corporate act of receiving communion. But Christians are not to participate in the rituals and ceremonies of other religions because that would bring them into some kind of partnership. When I was traveling in Mongolia with a Buddhist monk, he took me into his home and he showed me his shrine and he invited me to make some kind of an offering. I can't remember exactly what he wanted me to do, uh, but I knew in my heart that I couldn't do it. I'd only give my life to Christ maybe six weeks before that. And it was a slightly awkward moment. I was trying to explain. He didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Mongolian. I'm trying to explain that as a Christian, I drew a cross. I showed him my Bible. Like I say, a bit awkward, but actually we became firm friends. But we can't compromise in this area. We can perhaps observe but we must not participate in the rituals and ceremonies of other religions. The Corinthians were coming from a culture where it was it's actually quite odd not to worship multiple gods. So for them, it'd be perfectly normal to receive communion and then go off to the, the pagan temple and bow down to a pagan god. That wouldn't seem like a strange thing to do. Uh, I've heard that when Hindus are introduced to Christianity, uh, they're often willing to worship Jesus. Um, As far as they're concerned, he's just another god to add to the list. The crunch point comes when they realize that worshipping Jesus means rejecting all other gods. But for most of us, idolatry doesn't take that form. And I'm pretty sure that no one here would consider installing um, a statue of Aphrodite or Poseidon in their living room and bowing down to them. We don't really come across that here in Australia. Nevertheless, idolatry uh, is still alive and well in 21st century Australia. Human beings have been created to worship. We are worshippers by nature. If we don't worship God, we don't cease to be worshippers. We just end up worshipping something or somebody else that isn't god and as christians we might say well we're okay we're not idolatrous we worship jesus well what i'm about to say might be a little bit shocking because if jesus is not the number one priority in our lives we are to some extent idolatrous if jesus is not the number one priority in our lives we are to some extent idolatrous Jesus' rightful place is number one in our lives. And if he's not there, then something else is. Or maybe a whole load of things that we put before Jesus. Could be anything. Career, money, sport, leisure, study, family. Family. Someone might say, family? Of course I put my family first. Isn't that a good thing? Well, it is good to prioritize our families. We absolutely should do. But ultimately... We put Jesus first because that is by far the best thing that we can do, not just for ourselves, but for our families. I know that I can be a much better husband and father if I put Jesus first. But that's easier said than done. We can all say, yep, Jesus is my number one priority. But is that reflected in the way that we actually live our lives? What is the first thing that we think about when we wake up in the morning? A friend of mine once told me that uh, when he wakes up, as soon as he wakes up, he thanks God for a new day. Is that what we do? Is that the first thing? Is is, is God? Is Christ the first thing? the first thought in the morning. What goes through our minds uh, when we're trying to get to sleep at night, or when we wake up in the middle of the night? You know, you wake up in the night and you you're lying there thinking trying to go back to sleep, what are the things that we're thinking about? This can be very telling if we want to know what our true priorities are. Are our spiritual disciplines a priority on any given day, particularly connecting with Jesus through prayer and the Bible? On a Sunday morning, is our first priority to gather with God's people for worship? Or are there other things that take precedence? Is church the thing that we do if we feel like it and if there's nothing better that we can think of to do? Is our giving the first thing that comes out of our account each month? Is our giving sacrificial? Is our deepest desire to see God's kingdom come? We pray it every week. Your kingdom come. Is that our deepest desire? To see people saved? To see people brought into God's kingdom? to see God's kingdom being built up in this place. I know I don't put Jesus first nearly enough. And that is probably true. In fact, it's definitely true for all of us. In verse 14, though, Paul says, flee from idolatry. This doesn't mean running away from little wooden carvings. For us, it means reordering our lives. It means changing our priorities so that we are focused on building God's kingdom instead of our own little kingdom. It means we seek God's glory instead of our own glory. The church exists to glorify God. Everything flows out of that. We exist to glorify God, each and every one of us. So let's not just go through the motions. The sacraments that Paul is referring to a lot in this passage, the sacraments, baptism, communion, all the things we do as a church It's wonderful. Those things bring us into partnership with God and with one another. But that partnership, that partnership needs to be reflected in every area of our lives. We need to be consistent. So let us put down complaining and negativity and pick up thankfulness and heartfelt praise. Let us flee from sexual immorality and pursue purity. Let us flee from idolatry by reordering our lives and changing our priorities. And ultimately we will find that this is by far the most fulfilling and uh, the, the, the most rewarding, the most beautiful way to live. Jesus must be number one in our lives. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize that we are flawed and we are sinful and we are broken. Um, we don't put you first uh, most of the time in our lives and we struggle with that. We have conflicting priorities. We're busy. We're under pressure. There's all kinds of things that pull us away from you. And we recognize that. But Lord, we pray that you'll strengthen us and you will help us to keep turning back to you, to persevere, to, to, to have a, a deep desire to grow in our faith, to grow as Christian people, to grow as a church. We pray, Lord, that uh, more and more we'll be able to put you first, that our lives uh, and every aspect of our lives will glorify you. Help us with this, Lord. We struggle with it. We need your help. Fill us with your spirit and help us to be the people that you have called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.